I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome you all back to the Weiss Seminar Lecture Series and take a brief moment to look back at where we've been so far. Over the past few weeks, with the help of Penn State faculty and visiting scholars, a stunning picture of Pennsylvania's role in the Age of Revolution has taken shape. Such a grand and accessible reconstruction of our heritage is due to the cooperation and teamwork of these scholars working together to produce something pretty unique in academia. While they go one at a time, together their efforts bring a depth of setting to their individual pursuits as a larger and fuller model gives a new vibrancy to each discussion. Today's lecturer adds an essential component to this endeavor. Dr. Terry Boughton is an associate professor of history at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, where he teaches courses on early America and the era of the American Revolution. The Organization of American Historians has honored him as a distinguished, distinguished lecturer for 2009 through 2012. He is the author of Taming Democracy, The People, the Founders, and the Troubled Ending of the American Revolution, a book that won the 2008 Philip S. Klein Book Prize. T.H. Breen called Boonton's Sorry, Boughton's book, that's uh, in my brain. Uh, Boughton's book, a compelling study that brings passion and insight to the bittersweet story of the betrayal of a truly revolutionary society. In Taming Democracy, Boughton turns the Pennsylvania to Pennsylvania during the American Revolution as a particu particularly revolutionary state. The people of Pennsylvania took democracy in their own hands well before the adoption of the Constitution restricted political participation to representational government more than a decade later. Looking at such events as the Whiskey Rebellion, Boughton's history emphasizes how, as he puts it, the people expected to participate politically not just on election day, but 365 days a year. It is my pleasure to present Terry Boughton, who will consider the subject further in his lecture, Foreign Founders, How European Financiers Checked America's Democratic Experiment. Thank you. Hi, thank you very much for that introduction. Um, thanks very much for having me here. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for coming out. Um, uh, I'm going to take a sort of approach that I think fits within the themes of the series, which is to look at Pennsylvania's role in the revolution, but also to, to try and connect what's happening in Pennsylvania to wider forces, both nationally and internationally. And, and international is what I'm really going to focus on today. Um, that what, what we're going to talk about today is really a story of the founding moment. And to give you sort of a timeline of what we're going to be dealing with, it's really the basic of story is about a 1776 to 1787 kind of story. Um, and, I, and I wanted to lay out what, what, what I'm going to do today. I got four things I want to try and get done today. First is to talk about reframing the founding moment. And that is to begin thinking differently about the founding moment and a different way to reimagine the founding moment. Um, or what I call it, reimagining the new American Republic as a developing nation. Um, and this is not how we're used to thinking about the revolution and certainly about the new United States, but I want to offer some ways in which that's, that is a, is a pretty helpful way, I think, to think about things. Uh, my next thing topic is the floundering, as I call it, rather than the founding. Um, and, or, and you thought McMansion's property flipping, default credit swaps, and irresponsible lending were something new. Um, as we're going to see, this is a new look at the founding elite, and especially a look at the financial portfolios of the, of the founding elite, something that most historians just ignore altogether. 
the next topic is uh, European financiers and uh, democracy, or why rich foreign guys were afraid to invest where governments seemed too responsive to the will of egalitarian-minded debtor majorities. Um, this, again, is, gonna, is a story about why uh, the, we'll learn about the importance of foreign investment to the founding elite, and also why foreigners were reluctant, uh, foreign financiers were reluctant to invest in America. Uh, and the answer, as we see here, is democracy. Um, finally, we'll talk about founders, financiers, and the Constitution, uh, and link and watch the ways in which European financiers demanded changes in the American state to make it less democratic, and the American founding elite responded to those demands. So th this is the story. It's, I, it's, uh, I'm guessing, not a version of the revolution and certainly the founding of the Constitution you've probably heard before. Um, or, as I call it, giving the foreign investing people what they want. Um, we're going to start with that first one, which is sort of the overall, some of the, some of the stakes involved here, and some of the ways I think we want to reimagine the founding moment. And one is, again, is that idea of reimagining the new, new America Republic as a developing nation. One of the things I think we do when we think about the founding is to, like, Imagine American history backwards, right? We imagine the American history and the American state of today being the American state of the uh, 18th century. And in, in fact, like, this is just not right. Um, instead, it, I think America looks a lot more at the time like a modern developing nation in that it is like land and resources rich, but cash poor. Right? It is, it, is, it is a place brimming with possibility, but without... Uh, a, a, a ready supply of credit and capital. Okay, part of what this overall thing of rethinking sort of development, developing nation format. One of the things along the way is rethinking the founding elite. Now, typically, we like to think of them as statesmen and philosophers, and I'm not saying we, you know, we throw that out the window that they were never about big ideas and philosophies of government and you know reading the classics and the rest. That's certainly true. They did. But they were also men on the make, right? These were people who had financial interests, a financial stake. They had made, you know, as we like to think of them as always making good decisions. They made a lot of really bad decisions um, and got themselves in some serious financial hot water. Uh, and what we're going to talk about today is that financial hot water. Um, also, we want to rethink the role of Europe in the founding. Usually, Europe is looked at as a, like a toolbox of ideas, right? We reach back to Florentine thought and ideas of democracy and republicanism that are floating around at the time and debates about that. And Americans are building on those and taking some of those ideas. Um, on, Europe's also looked at as a national security threat. We need a stronger national government to protect against European invasion and protect our shipping interests against Europe, right? Certainly all that is true. But... Europeans also play are active players, in particular European financiers, who help make the new American government less democratic. Right? They want to see an American state that is less democratic than the one that emerges in 1776 or the 1780s under the Articles of Confederation. Right? They want to see a different, less democratic America. Finally, rethinking democracy. Um, well, who's 
how do we define democracy? What is democracy? Whose ideas of democracy are we using to try and define that term in the revolutionary era? Uh, and one of the other things, relationships, things I want to talk about and, and certainly conclude about is the relationship between democracy and capitalism, right? I mean, you hear this all the time, American democracy, sort of like democracy equals capitalism. If you have democracy, it promotes capitalism. If you have capitalism, it promotes democracy. Um, and, and what I want to do is sort of bring that view into, sort of challenge that view here. Because in, in the 18th century, and certainly in revolutionary Pennsylvania, the people who are supporting democracy, the advocates of democracy, are opposed to the pro-investor, creditor, capitalism that emerges from the revolution. That's not what they had in mind when they thought about democracy. Right? What they got was not what they thought they, they had in mind. OK, that's the overview. Let's start with the sort of turn back and hit the specifics. All right, we're going to talk about the floundering first. And you thought McMansion's property flipping default credit swaps and irresponsible lending were something new. This is, this is the one that's really news to people in some ways. Um, the founding elite as men on the make. And if one takes what we know about the revolution and the founding elite, this makes sense. Um, that during and after the war, many elite families overspent on luxury items and overspeculated on land, warded certificates, and other kinds of ventures. Um, they will imperil their finances. And eventually, they're also going to imperil the finances of non-speculating partners, which is where we're going to get into like, the issue of default credit swaps, where it looks almost exactly like the same kinds of things we're seeing today. OK. What's driving this initially is, is a crisis of luxury. And this is something that commentators at the time talked about sort of incessantly, right? wrote newspaper editorials talking about, you know, people are overspending, and there's too much luxury, and uh, you know, they're not living within their means. Um, and, and there's something to that, in that the war, the revolution, the war, creates this kind of cultural transformation of America. Right? It remakes the American gentry, in a way. In that, as we all know, right, many of the top wealthy folks, the top gentry in the colonies sided with Britain, and many of them leave. The war itself also saw a tremendous reordering of society with uh, fortunes won and fortunes lost during the war itself. It saw opportunities for people during the war, like army officers, who began to reimagine themselves as European gentlemen, right, training with French officers, right, who began to, who, who, who then tried living that lifestyle. Right? As I said, much has been said on the poverty of the times. Many have been the specious remedies proposed to the public. But few have touched upon the right key, profusion and luxury. Right? The sure concomitance of wealth, whether real or imaginary, and how imaginary our wealth has been, is but too well known, have so far depraved our morals and taste that very few live within the bounds of their income. Right? You can find this kind of stuff all over the place. Well, what do we mean by this? Like, give an example of this kind of thing. For example, carriages in Philadelphia in 1772, uh, right, on the eve of the revolution, there were about 84 carriages in Philadelphia. Uh, in 1994, that had, you're right, we got 10 times as many carriages riding around Philadelphia, 860. Um, so there is, there is something of, uh, that we can quantify and certainly qualify a lot, some sort of luxury spending going on among the American gentry. And a lot of like, the old money will comment on sort of the new money coming along and spending in you know, frivolous ways and building big, giant houses and the rest of this, and, and just sort of disdainful of all this. Well, along with this spending went a tremendous sort of rampant speculation 
right? Uh, and all of this is based upon a belief and a shared belief, both in Europe and America, that at the end of the war, there was going to be an investment boom from Europe that was going to sort of make everybody rich. Right? European money was going to flood into America. They were going to buy up everything in sight. And, and if you could get there first and hold the land first, or do it, you could make a killing. Uh, so there is sort of tremendous overspeculation. Um, and this, is, this was like, you, you name it, you can find people talking about this. Uh, English musician William Priest, he says, were I to carry the United, characterize the United States, it should be by the appellation, the land of speculation. Uh, the Marquis de Chastelux, right? Philadelphia is, so to speak, the great sink wherein all the speculation of America terminates and mingles, right? Philadelphia is targeting as the center of all this. Okay, what are people speculating in? What, are they, what have they bought thinking that Europeans are going to buy? The number one answer in America, right? We're land rich, cash poor, land. And, and it's not just buying the land or getting title to the land that was the issue here, right? I mean, if you want to sell this land and sell it at a tidy profit, the idea was you have to, make, you have to convince people that your land is the land people are going to settle on. So it was not just taking a down payment and sort of buying the land or getting title to it or trying to get title to it or put it, whatever. It was also building roads that would lead to the land. It was building grist mills and sawmills and things that would make people want to live there and someone purchase your land. Uh, as someone said at the time, the land speculator is the man who connects in himself the farmer, the merchant, and the manufacturer, right? If you're the land speculator, getting this thing running and profitable meant you're doing lots more than just sort of sitting in Philadelphia purchasing land. Okay, one of the other things being speculated in is war debt certificates. These are sort of when the government runs out of money and the continental currency no longer circulates, Congress begins issuing IOUs. We pay for the end of the war with IOUs. Like literally just drafts written by quartermasters and soldiers. So we paid soldiers at the end of the war in IOUs. We paid farmers in IOUs. Merchants will get paid in IOUs. Like you're making boots for the army or blankets, you're getting paid in IOUs. These IOUs, from the moment they are written, are never worth more than pennies on the dollar. So for example, you could get a $100 certificate for anywhere between $7 and $15, right? And it never traded, like it's not going to trade more than that, right? So these certificates that are out there, like, and they fall into the hands of wealthy Americans who end up buying them. Uh, the concentration in Philadelphia is astonishing. It's like 90% of the war debt is held by 200 people. Who you know, they're all in Philadelphia, and I'm sure you know their names. Um, uh, this is more of a story in the South, but you know, this is a national story. This is not just happening in Pennsylvania. And there it's uh, slaves. Uh, uh, tens of thousands, if not 100,000 slaves have run away during the war. And the idea is, you know, Southern planters are out, losses on their slaves, and or are imagining this boom, post-war boom, so they want to take advantage of it and be able to produce for that. So the, the people in, in South Carolina, this is from South Carolina, complained about planters who, in their avidity for wealth, have engrossed more land ne Negroes than they can pay for. Okay, we got a lot of speculation going on. All of it depends on access uh, to money and credit, right? That, that's what this swims in. As James Wilson, a uh, famous Philadelphian, one of the first Supreme Court justices said, the first axiom of land speculation, never to be in want of money. Uh, William Cooper, the New York speculator, I have often compared the dealer in land to a ship. Money is the element he swims in. Without money, he is aground. 
question, where's the money coming from? And here's sort of the classic follow the money story. And it's a good one, right? And it leads to what, what is clearly sort of pyramids of debt, where right, European lenders are providing some of the seed money. They floated a lot of goods and some loans on credit to Americans. They have floated money to purchase war debt certificates, because often states prevented foreigners from purchasing war debt certificates, so you had to have an agent in America, in America working for you. Uh, it, they also borrowed from financial institutions. The Bank of North America in Philadelphia, for example, becomes like this, like this factory for producing land speculations uh, and through insider lending. The board of directors, people like oh, James Wilson and Robert Morris, uh, like take the bank's equity and loan themselves money. Uh, and they use their land as collateral for this. And they well, land that they only put a down payment on because they've got friends in the loan office or in the land office. But then they use that money, uh, that land as collateral for new loans. And that for new loans again, right? So suddenly the equity of the bank is tied up in land. And by the way, the bylaws of the bank said you couldn't do that. But when you run the bank, <laughs> Who cares about bylaws? Um, there's also webs of credit and debt, right? People are borrowing from one another. Gentry are borrowing from one another. And a lot of people who aren't speculating are getting caught up in this. Why? Because if you want a deal and somebody has questions about your credit or it's a really big deal, often you needed somebody to sign a surety bond. A gentleman of wealth and standing who was, had people thought had good credit, here's where we get the default credit swaps, right? You take somebody who has good credit to mask your bad credit or your potentially bad credit, and they sign on, often not knowing how deeply you were into debt. Um, and so you get these incredible webs. Um, oh, where did I go backwards here? Um, other, other ways, unintentional consequences. Dickinson College, like they start up this college down the road, and they look for startup money uh, for the college, for their endowment, and they, all they can't get anybody to give money. All they'll give is like certificates for speculative land tracts, and they'll give uh, war debt certificates. So 90% of the endowment is in land and war debt certificates. Right? All of these gambles, all of this, depends upon European speculators, investors willing to speculate in American land. Like, they got to buy this stuff. You bought so much of it, you need somebody to help you pay it off. You got to buy, like, you need Europe. This is predicated on dreams of European bailing out America by investing. The problem is, Europe's not buying. Why? Well, the initial investments aren't really paying off yet. They've bought some land, that's not selling. They've bought some merchants, the stuff they've shipped to merchants is not selling, right? All these people who are living the high life haven't paid their bills. Uh, and the domestic war debt, right? they're, not, like, they're not getting paid off on that. America's broke. Um, and they're not idiots, right? They do what the United States does. If we invest in Nigeria, well, what do we do? We send, companies will send agents to Nigeria to see what the heck's going on there. They did the same thing. They send agents to America who basically report that the American gentlemen, like the guys pushing these deals, are like, these, they're in trouble. <laughs> like, I don't see where the money's coming from for any of this. Uh, Samuel Vaughn, this guy is the guy, if you go to Mount Vernon, George Washington's home, gave the mantelpiece. You can see the, man the marble mantelpiece was given by Samuel Vaughn. So he's like, a, this guy's a player, right? From habits contracted in the field and associating with their gay, volatile allies, meaning the French, uh, in camps and cities, they have acquired a general relaxation of that moral simplicity of manners that prevailed before the war, with a propensity in the towns to show 
expense and dissipation, insomuch that living in cities has become more expensive than in London, and which must cause many bankruptcies in trade, which is greatly overdone, and many living on the proceeds of effects procured on credit, and this has been highly promoted and encouraged by the unseasonable, enormous credit injudiciously given by the merchants and manufacturers in England, who must be severe sufferers, as the produce of this continent will not for years be sufficient to pay for the importation since the peace. This has and must cause the exportation of bullion and eventually destroy credit and bring people in general to their sober senses, to their usual level. I love that, the, like the, the usual, like these American pretenders, genteel pretenders brought down to the usual level. Um, totally disdainful, but basically saying, don't touch America, right? These guys are like up to their eyeballs and you invest with them, they're going to go under, they're going to bring you down with them. Okay, more than this, however, there is a reason not to invest, and that was democracy. These guys are really interesting, the people who, the potential investors in America. They are uh, sort of afraid, rich guys afraid to invest with it. Like, they like the idea of democracy. They're, many of them are fans of the revolution. But they don't like it in practice when it comes to thinking about investment, right? They, they, I like the idea of freedom and freed from certain rules, but they don't like what, what the ways that ordinary people are defining it, right? They like the idea of freedom, but they don't like what Americans are, the ways they're defining democracy. They're afraid of the economic populism of ordinary Americans in particular, right? What they see is pro-debtor laws and courts. They, you, Courts in America were decentralized, and if most of the community is being foreclosed because they can't pay debts or taxes because they believe the, you know, they've eliminated the ruling elite has eliminated paper money, right? The governing elite, revolutionary leaders have eliminated paper money, which was the only form of money they had access to. No more paper and money around. We can't pay our debts or taxes. That saw them as being unfair. Is it in democracy's name that America should be foreclosed? No. So. Right, they began passing stay laws so that trying to keep debts from being collected. And courts would refuse, uh, often refuse to end up prosecuting people. There's also, if the courts did try, there's lots of protests, like people getting together and beating the hell out of tax collectors, or uh, getting together and at a property auction, and like the whole neighborhood would show up, and everyone would just stand there with their hands folded when they started taking bids. And if you were from outside the community and started taking bids, you'd, you're bidding on something, you'd get the evil eye, and you would know that you would get the heck out of there as quickly as you possibly could. Right? So there's all these protests that are keeping property from being foreclosed. And right, Europeans are really upset with this. There's a British firm, and their agents are writing back, and they're writing to their agents. We are the opinion that if your laws will not compel debtors to pay, we must be contented with losing our property. And the only satisfaction we will have will be not to trust a nation without law. We hope better things and that you have a law to make people pay their just debts. I mean, right, I mean what could be clearer? Uh, think about it. You've speculated your fanny off in land and government securities, and you won't want these guys, to, you need them to invest. And what are they saying? Like, you, you know, no. You, like, look, you're a mess. Look, they don't pay debts. They don't pay, your courts do nothing. No thanks. Philadelphia agents for major British traders. And some of this stuff is fantastic. It's so, like, they're so melodramatic over the top. Like, oh, abominable laws, right? The people will not pay for things. And next, I am afraid as the people don't break here half as fast enough yet and continue to stand in the way of a proper trade. Think about what that means. 
right? What's a proper trade? Well, all these people who haven't paid, you got to foreclose them, right? They have to break, right? What do we want? We want a government that's going to break the people. If people are in debt and they can't pay, break them, right? And when they're broken in the land, we collect the land and the rest, then you're going to have a proper trade and thing will, oops, excuse me, things will work right, right? That, that, like, what, there's nothing more candid than that about what the stakes are here. Right? Uh, our agent has just returned from an excursion among the Jersey thieves. And to make short of the matter, he finds them destitute of honor, honesty, and shame. Now, we know that's true, but, <laughs> but, but, this is, but you know, certainly clearly playing, you know, playing it up here. Um, they were afraid of government loan offices or land banks. Um, th th these were government institutions that ended up like like, we're a bank. There's, we had a publicly run, government-run banking system in America. It wasn't new now. It had been in place during the colonial period. Most colonies ended up having some form of land bank that issued long-term, low-interest loans to people. Um, what, what ordinary folks want is that that's what they want. They want government to provide loans, long-term, low-interest loans to small farmers and businessmen to be able to expand their businesses. Um, uh, Europeans, don't, right? No like that, right? They also don't like government-issued paper money. Um, what, what, what do these governments loan out through these land banks? They loan out paper money. Uh, if governments need to buy things or pay debts, how are they paying them in this period? Many cases through printing paper money. Uh, European financiers, do you want to be paid in American paper money or gold and silver? Gold and silver, right? I mean, you want specie, you want bullion. Uh, and you see Americans' ideas of democracy getting in the way of that. Uh, again, New Jersey, they, they complain about Pennsylvania like this like crazy, but I like picking on New Jersey. Uh, New Jersey are now pushing for a large sum of paper money to be a tender and discharged of any debts within the state. What but the devil couldn't do such a measure? This is fantastic. You'll see at the Constitutional Convention later, they, like, they'll raise it again. I didn't put the quote in, which I should have, which is one guy will say, like, they don't, if we don't eliminate paper money, it will be like the sign of the devil. Like it's like six, six, paper money is like six, 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 Damien spitting pea soup or whatever, as like paper money. Um, Rhode Island, that thieving rascally paper money country, is now become too sinuous for an honest man of property to keep on in business. They hate Rhode Island. Oh, Rhode Island's the worst. Right? They'll hate Pennsylvania, they hate Jersey, but man, Rhode Island is the worst because they're like a debtor majority to farmers take control of the legislature and they print paper money and make it a legal tender for debts and pass all this anti-debtor legislation to keep people from being foreclosed and the Europeans are going nuts over this. Right. They're afraid of attempts to revalue war debt certificates. So look, all these IOUs. You bought them up for what? It says 100 bucks on it, you got it for seven to 15 bucks, maybe less. Yeah, pretty good. If you can get it paid off, at, they also pay 6% interest per year, which meant if you can get six bucks a year, right? You paid seven bucks for it, you can get $6 a year in interest. That's pretty damn good. <laughs> if you can get them to pay. But, but ordinary people are like, it's like a lottery. Were those ever worth? I mean, these things were issued to farmers and soldiers. and the Did they ever get that kind of money for it? They were, they were only ever worth seven bucks, seven to 10, $15 most. What, do you, what would you want? You think these guys will hold it now? 200 people in Philadelphia should get, right? Where's the money gonna come from? 
taxes on you. State's going to have to collect them. That strike you as fair? What would be, what can you conceive of something fairer? People at the time thought it would be fair that if they were, like, take the top rate in the market that these certificates went for, revalue the certificates to those level, and pay them interest based on that. They won't lose a dime. They'll make their money back. They'll actually make a decent profit off of this. They just won't make a killing, right? That's, that's, right? That was democracy. That was the solution. Not, not kill the rich, right? It was, We'll find ways so they're not losing anything, but they're just not going to get extremely wealthy off of our backs. Right? Uh, there were protests against tax collection for the war debt. Right? People are pissed off. They're being foreclosed for taxes, unpaid taxes, because they're being collected. These taxes are being enacted in gold and silver, and they don't have money. There's gold and silver not around. How are we going to pay this? I'm be so you want to take away my horses because of some certificate? And if I was a soldier that fought in the war sold this I IOU because it was never worth anything, and now some, I got to pay money so some guy can make a killing off of this? Oh, you can imagine, right, what happened. And it did happen. Uh, uh, so, so there's tremendous protests against collection of tax, which people said, like, we don't mind, we'll pay taxes. The whole thing is, it's not anti-tax. These people were just like, oh, we hate the state, you know? We're, Socialism's bad. I mean, no, no. Like, like, like they wanted a government-run banking system. Like, well, these are not libertarian, anti-statist people. But they were saying, like, look, dude, we'll pay taxes. Taxes are okay, and we'll see. We, we, we'll just make them progressive. What should you tax? Well, tax speculative lands. You want to make, put lands in the hands of ordinary people? Tax speculative lands. These guys are holding huge tracts. Tax the tracts. They're either going to pay the money on them or they'll have to sell them, which means that we can buy them, right? The American people can buy them. Small holders, the world, the Jeffersonian world of small farmers, right? Uh, tax bank stock, tax profits on the war debt, right? All of these ways of thinking of generating revenue that they saw as being, right? And they're like, if, you want to, if we're part of that and there's some, you know, proportional to wealth, then we'll, we'll pay it. But this one doesn't seem to be that way. Um, they're also... Like, not just pro-government-run banking system, they are anti-bank, private banking. Um, uh, in fact, in uh, Pennsylvania, in several, several states are going to refuse to issue charters to banks when merchants try to get to create private banks, and they, they shoot them down. Um, uh, New York, they delay and delay and delay and delay and delay, and they finally they'll get it back in New York. The first bank in America, private bank, Philadelphia, Bank of North America. Right, created by the merchant Robert Morris. Uh, people are so angry about that bank that uh, when sort of there's this brief moment where the quote debtor forces are going to get in, in power, and one of the first things they're going to do is revoke the charter of the Bank of North America, right? revoke its corporate status so that the, the individuals are now liable for the debts of the bank, which this bank's pyramided debt like crazy. So a lot of these people are really afraid of what's going to happen. Um, and this plays in Europe not so well, right? As an American merchant in Holland wrote, the act of your assembly taking away the charter of the bank has done more mischief to America than you can conceive. Hundreds of people in Europe with overgrown fortunes were about to invest their cash in our lands until the tidings of the attack upon the bank reached London. They have all changed their minds and considered nothing as secure in the new states. Right? And it wasn't just that. It wasn't, they were like against 
private corporations altogether. Like tremendous uh, anti-corporate sentiment during this period. William Finley, one of the Western Pennsylvania popular, petitions, uh, popular politicians, he said, sort of banks and other corporations that were, quote, actuated by the principles of united avarice, by which he meant for profit, like they're trying to make money, uh, were, quote, totally destructive of that equality which ought to prevail in a republic, right? Saw private banking as antithetical to democracy, right? That this is, this is what's gonna crush democracy, that kind of private concentration of wealth will crush democracy. We're used to thinking about people being afraid of concentrated power, like Britain, concentrated government power. They're also terrified of concentrated private power, right? and especially the corporate form. Um, they're also, Europeans are also pissed off in, by anti-land speculation laws and rulings. Some states, like Pennsylvania, had bans on foreigners owning land. So if you, you can't buy, you have to buy through an American agent, if you want to buy, who holds the property in their name. Uh, there were lots of rulings to try to cap the amount of land that speculators would purchase, trying to keep the lands, right, democratically in the hands of egalitarian. You want, you want a world of small farmers owning the land, not big speculators and tenant farmers and slaves working their land, right? So you saw bans on foreign land ownership, among other things. Okay, all of these foreign fears are going to help lead to da-da-da-da, right? The Constitution, right? Founders, financiers, and the Constitution, or giving the foreign investing people what they want. Um, and, and that's literally what happens here, right? European financiers basically write the founding elite and say, you know, they're pitching these deals to them and they reject it. And they say, here's what's the problem. You know, we don't like democracy, we don't like all this other stuff. But we will invest in America if you guys remake the government, right? You change things in America. You make your country more inviting to, to foreign investment. You make pro-creditor laws and the rest, and, and we'll invest. And this also means, right, and the effect of this is basically stifling popular ideas of democracy, both in terms of policies and the structure of government, right? Kill all those private, you know, those programs that ordinary people want, and in fact, remake governments in ways so that people can't get their, like if they want that stuff, make it so they can't get it, right? Find ways to structure government. So what do they want? And you know, this is pretty self-evident from what they didn't like. It's the same stuff. They don't want a government-run banking system or government-issued paper money. They want private banks and private bank money, right? These guys are bankers in Europe, right? They're Bank of England. One of the guys is Robert Barclay, right, of Barclays Bank. I mean, these are, right, these are, they, they don't want a government-run banking system that provides long-term low-interest loans. They're like, we don't want to compete with that. I mean, this sounds familiar in some ways. Um, foreign investors want it, right, debts and taxes collected. They want courts to enforce collection, right? Break the people. They, I mean, that's what he said. People aren't breaking fast enough because the courts, and we want courts that'll break the people. Um, they want assurances that debts, private debts, and the domestic war debt certificates, right? All those IOUs from the war. They're not talking about the foreign debt in the 1780s. They're not, the foreign debt is not an issue, right? The money we own, foreign nations are borrowed from France. That's not the issue. The issue is this domestic debt. And foreigners are angry because they've speculated in it too and they haven't gotten anything for it from their perspective. Uh, they want an end to all those kinds of anti-speculator laws, right? Anti, you know, can't own land if you're foreign, can't hold war debts, all this other stuff. They want like just can it, uh, right? Especially laws targeting foreign speculators, right? And they want changes to government that would ensure that men mean, uh-oh, men 
of wealth and standing made decisions. Um, what, what this meant was, right, ec economic decisions insulated from democratic control, right? You wanna, how do you do that? One, either privatize them, right? Take a public function of government like banking and make it a, a public function like banking and in control of money and, and fiscal policy or, or a monetary policy and make it a, put it in the hands of private institutions so that it doesn't matter what people vote for or want because they're not gonna get it because private men control this. Um, or kick it up to the federal level, right? And, and this is what the Constitution was supposed to be about. Uh, and, and not only that, like, like they spell this out. Like, they, like writing letters saying, well, what do we have to do to invest? And the Europeans were very helpful, right? Write back what, they, what, they, what their terms are. Um, the Marquis de Chastelux, till you order your confederation better, till you take measures in common to pay debts, which you contract in common, till you have a form of government and a political influence, we shall not be satisfied with you on this side of the Atlantic. Uh, Samuel Vaughan, men of fortune needed laws and a legal system that protected the security of property. Um, Dutch bankers uh, said that they wanted to see taxes collected and the war debt repaid in gold and silver, not government-issued paper money, which all of this, they said, would, quote, help remove the prejudices of our moneyed men and accustom them again to such placings of their capital in America. Right? I mean, they were very clear. Um, Swiss and French bankers wanted all of that stuff, uh, and they wanted a greater commitment to private banking. They said these changes would, quote, decide the Europeans as to their confidence in the United States. When this happens, many Europeans will undoubtedly give thought to the acquisition of the land in the United States. Just not right now, right? Do that, we'll invest. Um, the founding elite essentially rewrite a lot of these stipulations into the Constitution. Article 1, Section 10 is the most obvious of these, right? No state shall coin money, emit bills of credit, by not admitting bills of credit, that kills government-issued paper money, state-issued paper money, and it kills the state-run uh, land banks. So you kill the government banking system. If they, don't, if they can't print money and issue it, right, you've just killed the, you've just killed the public banking system there. Um, make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. Ah, they can't pass laws to revalue debts now, or the war debt certificates, or private debts, or make me take a chicken instead of a, right, have these arbitration and a judge decide what this debt is worth. Ah, they can't do that now, right? Pass any law impairing the obligation of contracts, which is so broad and general a phrase that it's a catch-all for all stiff sorts of things that, you know, uh, made them happy. Um, how much did they like this stuff? How important were these? This Article 1, Section 10? James Wilson, and I think James Madison says exactly the same thing, uh, declared that if the Constitution, the entire Constitution, consisted of nothing more than a single line of text banning paper money, preventing the states from printing money, he said, I think it would be worth our adoption. Right? And in the midst of this, he says that, and then somebody else at the convention's like, yeah, it's like 666, right? I mean, they, and they go off, and they all try to totally unload on government-issued paper money. Um, the other thing that happens, and the other big things, there's lots of other things that happen we can talk about, but the big ones I want to just sort of mention 
um, where the, the founding elite structured the federal government to be a, quote, stronger barrier against democracy. They get together at the Constitutional Convention, and they have this griping session at the beginning after they check everybody in, and they have a griping session where they basically say, what's wrong with America? Democracy, right? They all, all down the line say the problem with America is the American people. Our state governments are too democratic, and it allows the people to get things like paper money and debts and all, all this stuff they tick off, right? So they institute a system of checks and balances. Well, we, we're all familiar with that, right? That's the genius of the American system, checks and balances. What were they intending to check? Democracy, right? The discussions about all of the checks were about checking the people, right? The Senate and president to check the House, uh, democracy in the House, right? New federal courts to override state courts and economic matters. I mean, the, like the quotes on this are astonishing. I, didn't, I thought I was going to run out of time, so I didn't put, put much in. But you get, you get the sense here from the, the, the point I wanted to make was about investors. That the elite immediately write, they get the constitution, they write foreign investors saying, please, we're like, we got, you got it, you got it now. This is it, this is what you wanted. Like, please invest now. My favorite is a letter to the London banker, Robert Barclay, urging him to invest in America because the new government, it's exactly like England's. As they said, the office of the president may not be hereditary like the British king, quote, yet the difference is not so great as one would first imagine. Imagine, the Senate would be just like the House of Lords, filled with, quote, the most independent and wealthy characters. The, the whole thing is structured so that, quote, the majority of the American people could, quote, never under any popular convulsion be put in to carry any improper point. Right? We got this stacked in our favor. The whole thing. Right? And what happens after this? Continued attempts to, uh, right, expansion of corporations, uh, passing of pro-speculator and creditor laws, procedures, ruling, courts are overhauled within the states, right? I mean, this, to try and, you know, systematize it, streamline it, and make it more creditor and, and investor friendly. What's the result? Right, largely concentrations of wealth and power. Well, that's what they were shooting for. Make it like England, right? They, it's, capital means concentrations of capital, right? That's, that's what they were talking about. And, and let me finish here just with this, this idea and where, what do we take out of all this? Well, I mean, here's, here's what I think, here's, what, here's what's happened. I mean, here's what the stakes are in all this. Initially, right, the revolution had been an attempt to free America from economic colonialism, right? But now, at the very moment of freedom, America's elite founders dedicated themselves to remaking the new nation according to the demands of their former masters, right? I mean, these are the people they were trying to break away from, and now we break away, we want an economic freedom, we got our economic freedom, and now we want, right, we'll do what you say now to get your money. Uh, in effect, they reestablish economic dependency by adopting rules of law that during the 1760s and 70s, they themselves had like, decried as old world domination and oppression. I mean, it's, it's astonishing to compare what the founding elite were saying in the 1760s and 70s with what they're saying in the 1780s and 90s. Astonishing. Just the, they flip-flop 180 degrees. So what we have is a founding moment as bringing the new U.S. into an emerging system of Atlantic and indeed at global capitalism at the expense of democracy and popular ideas of good government and society, right? I mean, the victim here, it's not capitalism, democracy, walking hand in hand. It's, in fact, ordinary people's, like, democracy is a problem for capitalism from the perspective of European investors. And for ordinary people, right, what emerged in the economic systems that emerged is not the ones that they imagined would emerge or, or even wanted. I mean, that may be tough pill to swallow, but, right, I mean, that... 
put it together, right? That, that's what's going on here. Um, thank you very much.